Did you guys enjoy your extra hour of sleep? Sorry, Carl. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I, ironically enough, uh, I get to talk to you today about Sabbath. Um, and uh, I've just already, even this morning in conversation, I've been blessed with hearing stories of rest and renewal. And I think this is a very poignant message for us today. So uh, several years ago, my mom had actually talked to me about Sabbath. <clears throat> she told me she's doing this thing and, and kind of described it to me. And, and I'd heard the word Sabbath before, but just to be honest, I didn't honestly knew what it meant. So when she told me, I was kind of like, oh, that's cool. Like, congratulations. Or like, do you need equipment for that? Like, I just, I just didn't know where to contextualize this. Uh, but after she really told me in detail what it entailed, I thought, here it goes again, uh, just bringing on some old, old Testament Jewish tradition and just putting yourself into legalism under the law. Um, <clears throat> I just, I didn't agree with it. I kind of left it there. Fast forward to March, 2020. Uh, Idaho State had just announced the stay-at-home ordinance. And I remember I was already pretty exhausted at my job. And I, I heard this and I was like, yes, I get days off. This is great. And then I kept reading the ordinance and I found out that since I'm a medical provider, I still had to go to work. I was like, no, this is terrible. Um, but I remember those, those days driving to work and it was like a ghost town in Coeur d'Alene. It was weird. It was like the old Left Behind movies when everybody had gotten raptured and you're still there. Um, but I just remember being so frustrated that everybody else had days off of work and that I was stuck working and I was tired and I just desperately wanted rest. Meanwhile, my wife had come upon, uh, come upon this podcast called Fight, Hustle, and End Hurry. Uh, one of the hosts had written a book called uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, <clears throat> which I actually later read. But in the book, the host talked about um, Sabbath. In fact, he devoted a whole chapter to Sabbath. So here it was again, presented with this thing, but I now kind of knew what it was. I was so desperately tired and I wanted rest. So I decided to kind of wrestle with this idea. And I looked into it more. And later on in April, we decided to give it a shot as a family. Um, it, was, it was different. I mean, it didn't go to plan. I just remember, I remember walking around kind of anxious, kind of angsty and angry. I was trying to find something to do that like wasn't constituted at work and would get me stoned in the Old Testament. And I just, I just remember being upset about it. And then I felt like right at the end of that, that day or that, that time, God lovingly revealed to me just my own personal addiction to doing, to being busy. Um, here we are, three and a half years later, my family and I have been celebrating Sabbath nearly every weekend. And I can easily say that it has been one of the most life-changing, beautiful, instrumental gifts that God has used to draw my family and I closer to Christ. So I'm delighted that I get to, to speak with you about Sabbath today. But before we move on, I wanna pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you. I thank you for your word and for your truth. I pray that you would speak through me, your message and not mine, that your words would bury in our hearts and grow fruit and that whatever I have to try and add would fall away. Lord, I pray that you would help us to come at this with uh, a posture of seeking you more deeply. And I just pray that your will be done today. Amen. All right. So if you don't already have your Bibles open, you can turn to Matthew 11, 
if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. We're on page 864. Uh, this will be our anchor text for today, but I'm going to kind of skip through the Bible because there's, there's just kind of a lot to, to work through. Um, as always, we'll be doing Q&A on slido.com, so if you want to go there, uh, the code is hashtag RevCDA. <clears throat> and let's jump in. So Sabbath is actually, again, like I said, I was uh, unfamiliar with it, but it's actually kind of a, a big topic. There's a lot to be discussed and to be hashed out. It's more important than I think we give uh, credence to. And honestly, it's way bigger than what I have time to go over today. So I'm gonna kind of try to hit some high points, but it's gonna be more of an intro course. And so I really encourage you, if you have questions, if something that I say is, just sounds weird or rubs you the wrong way, lean into that. Come up to me, email the church, we really want to enter into this place. This is a gift, and so I want everybody, if, if you feel like God's pulling you towards that, I want you to be able to enjoy it. So <clears throat> I've kind of tried to organize this into three big sections. The first one is Sabbath as design. The second one is Sabbath as healing. And the last one is Sabbath as practice. So let's start off with Sabbath as design. Now in design, I, uh, I've done mechanical engineering in the past, uh, it's always helpful to look at the original design of something, but also to look at what happens when it goes wrong. So I'm going to kind of start a little backwards today and talk about the problem that we see now. And so what is the problem? Well, I think it's two big things. We're tired and we're busy. We, uh, we commonly, I mean, we know this inherently. When we walk up to each other, we see each other at, at church in the morning or out in, in the grocery store, what's the first question we ask? Is like, hey, how you're doing? And inevitably, you're going to hear an answer similar to like, well, I'm just kind of tired. I was up late last night with the kids, or uh, I'm just kind of worn out. There's a lot of stuff going on at work, or just burnout, weary. Whatever the version of it, the common problem remains is we're just tired. Um, the word weary is actually understood to mean that you're exhausted of strength, endurance, vigor, or freshness. Uh, the term burnout, uh, which has been really commonly uh, talked about, in, especially in the last couple of years, is defined <clears throat> as a psychological syndrome emerging as prolonged response to chronic interpersonal stressors. It's got three key dimensions of this response, and they are overwhelming exhaustion, feelings of cynicism and detachment from jobs and or loved ones, and a sense of ineffectiveness and lack of accomplishment. I want you to sit and think of that for a minute and, and look back and maybe even look now. Does that sound like something that you felt recently or currently? I know it is for me. In fact, the nature of my job kind of almost necessitates it. But I feel like if you're, if you're in it for an extended period of time, I think the question that often comes up is, is this what God really offered me when he gave me eternal life and he gave me life abundantly? Am I just living like society? Am I just being pulled along with the manic, fast-paced consumerism that we see? Or is there something supposed to be different about this? I think that's a good question to sit with and to hold in tension. Let's move on to busyness. <clears throat> so we have a lot to do. We work harder and we're busier than ever before in human history. In fact, there, the story goes that President Reagan convened a Senate subcommittee about uh, the 
impending increase in free time and what to do with people. As computers were coming into uh, to, uh, development and we're able to have computers in our homes, time-saving devices uh, were coming uh, and being more available, uh, the Senate subcommittee predicted that we would actually only need to have a 15-hour work week. Um, sociologists now look back at that and try to figure out what, what went wrong. And their best guess is that we traded time for money. So we're working busier and we're working harder. We end up trying to take responsibility to provide for ourselves, to promote ourselves, and even to satisfy ourselves. But to achieve this, we end up having to work harder and longer. Actually, in the 1970s, the, new, the, the term workaholism was first coined. Um, this was actually labeled, or this was used to label people who were burning themselves out. They were at their desk late at night and their first, their first thing in the morning. But eventually, just like with the, the free time issue, this actually became a good thing. People were wearing it around as a badge of honor in a way to get the boss to notice them. Like, oh yeah, I'm a workaholic. That's how I paid for my Benz or my nice house or whatever. It was like something to aspire to. Uh, we don't so much use that term these days, but we call it hustle culture now. I'm sure that most of us are familiar with that in social media and elsewhere. No matter what you call it, the problem has been around for a long time, far before that. <clears throat> we can look back that this is just a syndrome of us trying to prove our value to this inhumane system of just work and output and work and output. We sacrifice ourselves to it and we get nothing in return. So back to the 1970s, it's no coincidence that right around this same time, uh, there were two cardiologists in practice together and they noticed this really strong correlation between their type A patients and increased risk of heart disease and heart attack and stroke. I mean, we now take it for granted that high stress causes heart disease, causes other issues like cancer. But back then, it was completely novel that the mind could affect the body. So they coined the term hurry sickness to describe it. And they defined it as a continuous stage of struggle and an unremitting attempt to achieve more and more and participate in more and more events in less and less time. Or I think really beautifully summed up by Corey Ten Boom, if the devil can't make you bad, he will make you busy. Either way, this busyness, it cuts us off from our relationship with our Father. So, looking at the problems, I'd like to take one more step back and look at possible causes. And I think in relation to Sabbath, the causes are pursuing identity, seeking to satisfy our desires, and distraction. Let's talk about identity for a second. So we misunderstand our identity. This all started back in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve saw the fruit. They understood it was good for knowledge, and they took it upon themselves to get that knowledge on their own. The assumption was that we as humans can choose and create our own identity, that we can be like God. That's false. I mean, we know that's false. But to understand that, it's false. That's important. We also, we see it again and again since then. We see it throughout the whole of the Bible. We see that uh, in the Old Testament, the Israelites in Egypt as slaves um, were struggling with identity. In Exodus 5, verses 15 through 18, uh, we see a story where Moses has gone to Pharaoh to ask him to free the people so they can worship God. And the Pharaoh in, re in response says, absolutely not. In fact, I'm going to make it harder on your people. So they go to the, the slaves go to their foreman and now we see 
In this moment, the foreman coming to the Pharaoh. <clears throat> so as the Israelite foreman went in and cried for help to Pharaoh, why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants, yet you say to us, make bricks? Look, your servants are being beaten, but it is your own people who are at fault. But he said, you are slackers, slackers. That's what you are saying. That is why you are saying, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. So we see two things here. According to Pharaoh, their identity is just slackers, just slaves who need to produce and aren't doing it. So they're worthless. But I think more heartbreaking than that is that the Israelites aren't coming in as saying children of Yahweh or the people of Israel, they come in saying, your servants. Pharaoh's given, this, given them this identity that they are nothing more than slackers and slaves and they've accepted it. They've internalized it and they don't, they don't push. They just see themselves as servants, not as God's children. We also see kind of some similar identity issues throughout the Bible in Daniel and Esther, I think are good examples. Um, they're both different stories, but they, all, they both start with, the narrative that the Israelites have been taken into exile in foreign kingdoms. Esther was in Persia. Her, actually, her original name was Hadassah. Uh, Daniel was in Babylon. Um, and in both instances, you see that the foreign power changes the name of the Israelites. So like I said, Daniel's name, or sorry, Esther's original name was Hadassah. Daniel's name, they tried to change to Balthazar. But no matter what, no matter what their name was changed to, the whole point is they're trying to brainwash them. They're trying to rip away the identity of what they had as a people and give them this new one. In psychology, we know this to be a form of brainwashing and we see it done to people so that they can be given an identity that can be subjugated and controlled. It's not to empower, but it is to, to oppress. So we see this today, but it's a little bit more uh, it's a little bit more subversive. The, Lord, the, the world tells us that we are what we do and we are what we produce. I mean, we try to promote ourselves on Instagram. Think about the last time you met somebody for the first time, like at a party or something. Uh, the question of what do you do for a living comes up. Uh, this question is not bad in and of itself. I think it's great to be interested in people. But the answer that we usually answer with, I think, is kind of telling. People will usually say, I'm a bus driver, or I'm a mailman, or uh, I, I'm a, a sales employee at Walmart. Even something good like, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I think in the wording of that question, that I am a something, is just interesting into how much we've, we've let the culture affect how we see ourselves. I know I struggled with this. In fact, coming out of school, I wanted to, be, wanted to say, I'm a PA. Recognizing that's oppressive, I've now gone to, I work as a PA, understanding that I'm different, that I'm more than that. So the common lie is, that is our worth. If that wasn't enough, the world tells us that we can be anything we want to be, that we are the ones solely responsible for figuring out what we want to be, that we need to carve that out on our own, and then we need to bring all of that back to the society that burdened us with the responsibility so that we can have it validated and we can be self, self-actualized. <clears throat> this is just a burden that's too big for us to bear, for any of us to bear. It either leads us to becoming like Pharaoh ourselves and we squash and we put down others 
so that we can at least feel like we get our head above somebody else. Or we feel like the slackers. We have broken spirits and we just relegate ourselves to feeling like a failure and doing the best we can. Either way, again, it takes our eyes off God and it puts the focus on ourselves. It makes it not about us being part of his story, but a part of our own story. We try to make ourselves the hero just so that we can get ahead and we are doing what we feel like the world wants us to do, but really forgetting that we're part of his bigger story. And this never works. Instead, we make ourselves slaves to ourselves or to the world. We end up being slaves then and we're slaves now. And lastly, satisfying our own desires. Sorry, not lastly. I got more. (laughs) Satisfying our own desires on our own terms. Desire is a good thing. Desire is a natural thing designed by God. He designed it for a purpose. And that purpose is to be filled by him alone. The world, on the other hand, is going to try and tell us that it's an appetite that needs to be satiated. It's an appetite that we need to fill with everything that the world has to offer us. But like I said a minute ago, this is a system to just keep us beholden to the ways of the world. And it's oppressive and it's something that just grinds us. It leads to this this vicious cycle of desire and aversion. Psychologists will talk about this as a uh, uh, running to and running from pattern. So we see something we want and we think that that's gonna make us happy. So we run to it, we run to it, we seek after it, we pursue it and we grab a hold of it and instantly not happy. And we see the next thing. So we set it down and we run after and we just keep on the cycle, desire, just trying to fulfill these desires. Well, simultaneously, we're also trying to run from pain. We know that pain is inevitable, but we do what we can to mitigate and to manage and to run from it. Never mind that if we are managed to avoid some form of pain, there's probably something else waiting for us. So what ends up happening is we just are on this hamster wheel, running to and running from, just discontentment all day long. And we feel like it just never will stop. It's because it, it can inevitably go on forever. So lastly, we look at distraction. We seek to distract when we're overwhelmed. I mean, gosh, what I've already talked about is pretty, pretty bummer stuff. If we can't reassure ourselves of our identity and value, if we can't satisfy our desires, given the chance, we'll seek distraction. Even if we're making it, you just get worn out. Sometimes you just want a distraction. We get so overwhelmed and exhausted that it's easy to want to retreat into the, into the distraction of our choice to get the false comfort and rest that we so desperately crave. We've talked in here a lot about distraction in the past, but to go over a few, you know, it's the, the usual like social media and streaming services, shopping, substances, but it can also be good things like exercise and relationships, even work. And worse yet, it can even be holy things like ministry, like our calling, anything that we place in the space between us and Christ, even the disciplines we're talking about these last couple of weeks, these good things that are meant to draw us nearer to Jesus, they can all be distraction if it ends up taking the place between him and us. If we use it to limit intimacy, to let Jesus into that space, it's absolutely a distraction as well. It reminds me of uh, the story of Mary and Martha. You know, Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, reclining, just taking in his presence, listening to his, his teaching. 
Meanwhile, Martha's busy around the house. And we, we often will say that and go, oh yeah, just Martha. But don't forget, she's serving Jesus. She's busy in the service of Jesus. But in that moment, Jesus lovingly rebukes her and says, Mary has chosen rightly. Be with me, be with me, be with me. That's the rhythm of our lives. That's the rhythm that our lives were intended. So, sweet, downer story, right? How's everybody doing? You guys need a hug? <laughs> yeah. Catch me afterwards, Carl. All right. No, let's contrast that with the original design. If only there was something built in the rhythm of creation to help with this, to pull us out of the cycle. Let's look back further at Genesis 2, before the fall. Verses 1 and 3, we see God's cre- God creating. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. So it's interesting in the seven-day creation story that God blesses three things. He creates the animals, and he blesses them. He says, go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. He He makes Adam and Eve, and he blesses them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. And he makes the Sabbath, and he blesses it. But then we see him do something different here. He makes it holy. And this isn't a small thing. This is actually the first time we ever read the word holy in the Bible. And he's using it to designate a day. I think that's pretty powerful. So we look at this, and we say, okay, so he made it and blessed it. What did he do next? He rested, or in the Hebrew, Shabbat, which is where we get the word Sabbath from. He enjoyed the works of his hands. He delighted in the fruit of his creation. I think the closest I can come to this is uh, several years ago, I was helping my father-in-law put in a patio in his backyard, and we had to tear down the old wood patio and break it up and take it to the dump. We had to dig the foundation by hand because we couldn't get big tools in there. We had to bring all the gravel in by hand. We had to bring all the sand in by hand and and level it out. We had to bring all the bricks in by hand and lay them by hand. It was backbreaking work. And like day five, I think maybe even day six, uh, I was done. I was spent. But after we got done hosing off all the construction dust and it was there sparkling and all the beautiful colors of the brick, what did I do? I went in and showered first, but then I sat down. And I just enjoyed this thing that I've created, that I've been a part of, that just... It's just so amazing. I enjoyed it and I rested. I think we see God do that here. Also, something that, that might be missed by us in our modern reading, I think something that's kind of just like a nice little interesting aside, is that God doesn't create a holy place. Now, the ancient gods and goddesses of the Near East and the cultures around them, they had holy temples, they had holy ziggurats and mountaintops because since they're not real, since they're not the true God, they're limited by space. So they need a holy place for themselves. But God, he's not. He's infinite. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. So what does he do? He creates holy time. I think it's really just amazing. It's just so profound. The hugeness and the bigness of the God we serve, he creates a holy space. So what does this time look like? He talks about it later on. He says that you shall work every day or sorry, every six days and rest one. You should Sabbath in that. In uh, 
in Exodus 20, which is the first time we read the Ten Commandments. We see it here in in the fourth commandment. Uh, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord. You must not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them six days. Then he rested on the seventh. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. So in his system, in the the original creation rhythm, he created work and rest. Now, these are two necessary and complementary sides of of the creation plan. God created us to work. He created us to be blessable image bearers who honor him and partner with him in the work that he has to do. But also, as the natural part of that, he created us to enjoy him not to assert or order our identity, not to prove it, but instead to enjoy it in its intended form, the way that he gave it to us. And even more importantly, to enjoy him in it. So in a view of all of these issues and everything we've talked about and the disorder that we see, it's easy to understand what Jesus is saying here in Matthew. Let's go back to our text, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. <clears throat> Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying you've got it wrong, but let me show you the right way. Let me heal you, let me work in you. And I think this is something that we need to hear and we need to internalize on a regular basis. We need to put it deeply in our hearts. So let's move on to Sabbath as healing. This is the third big movement, or the second big movement in the three. I think that healing in this context takes kind of three different modes or forms. You see it as realignment with, with the original narrative. You see it as freedom from trust, or freedom in trust. We see it as refilling and renewal. Let's talk about realignment. <clears throat> so Jesus in this, this passage, Jesus saw the religious oppression that the Pharisees were creating as a, uh, um, holding the law of Sabbath over him. So he focuses on the intent of the Sabbath. Jesus speaks truth. Currently, we experience a burden that is no less exhausting, but is ironically, seemingly the opposite in nature. We deal with the idolization of freedom and doing, whereas theirs was religious oppression. Nonetheless, the invitation that he extends is the cure. It was the cure then and it's the cure now. All right, so show of hands, who here has broken a bone? Yeah, oh wow, okay, more than, I, more than I expected. All right, so what's the first thing that everyone says you need to do with a bad break? What does the doctor need to do when you get there? Set it, exactly. And why is that? It's because there's a natural alignment when it comes to bones. Like, they're designed to be in a straight line by and large. Uh, It's not like it can't heal on its own. It can. But if you think about a badly broken leg, like deformed broken, that leg can heal. In fact, our body is pretty amazing. You can lay down new bone and you can cross the gap between all of the pieces and actually get a stable form to walk on. But if that's not corrected and you continue to walk on that badly deformed leg for the rest of your life, 
you're going to end up experiencing more pain and dysfunction. It just won't work. But when a doctor straightens the deformity, when he casts it, and then it heals correctly, later on, we have the ability to walk or run or jump or do whatever else we used to do, largely without pain. Because of the fall, we have a fractured understanding of who we are. And this leads to a fractured understanding of the nature of work and time. The Sabbath command, it's the blessing that helps us stay oriented and aligned with the order of creation. It's kind of a weekly reminder that there is a God, but it's not me. It's a weekly reminder that even though the work will never be done, we're not responsible for its completion. I think C.S. Lewis said it great. It is not your business to succeed, but to do right. When you have done so, the rest lies with God. So in realigning our identities, there's usually two big questions somewhere deep that pop up. These are questions that we need to bring to God. And they are, who are you and who am I? Let's look back at our text in Exodus 6, 6 through 8. God addresses these questions in just this beautiful um, command to the Israelites. Therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. He's correcting what they thought. He starts off with, I am the Lord. He says it multiple times, I am the Lord. But then he also reminds them that you are mine, that you are my beloved. He's working to correct the lies that they've digested for so long. We actually even see him do it when he repeats the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. Yes, there are two sets of Ten Commandments. He personalizes it, though, to remind them of the importance of the Sabbath. So, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Be careful to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or your female slave, your your ox or your donkey, any of your livestock or the resident alien who lives within your city gates, so so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. And here it is. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day holy. So the message he gives them is you were slaves, but now you are mine. You are my possession. So bringing this forward to today, what does it mean? It means you're not what you do. It's not what you have done. It's not what you have. It's not what's said about you. It's not... Half the time, it's not even what you think about yourself. Our identity is established by the one who most deeply loves us. And that is God, the one who created everything, who sees everything, who knows everything. He dearly loves you. So let's move on from alignment to freedom. So this freedom is not the freedom that we are typically used to hearing in our context. It's, 
It's true freedom. It's freedom that we find as the result of trusting in God and seeing him be faithful. In my life, God has used this process to lovingly correct my view. Like I said, I'm not God, but that's a good thing. That's a good thing for all of you, especially. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, he's often challenged me with whether I trust him or not. And I say, yeah, God, I trust you. But when he asks me to do something hard, that's when we really find out how much I trust him. And when I've given something up to him and it's been a moment and I'm waiting for him to come through like he said he would, that's really when my, tr- my trust is tested. And in, in those moments, he reminds me that if trust isn't tested, is it really even trust at all? He invites me into this painful deep space. He sits with me in it and holds my hand in that moment. And I guarantee you, Every single time that I can trust him, he has come through. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, I think, has a a nice little addition to this. And she, she says, we do not lose control of our lives. What we lose is the illusion that we were ever in control in the first place. That's what Sabbath does. It frees us of our illusion of control and allows us to be with him. I don't know how many techie people we have in here, but there is a company called B&H Photo and Video. They are the largest camera retailer in the United States. As I checked, they were the second largest retailer of batteries. Uh, they were started in 1973 by Hasidic Jews. Uh, their company was recently valued at over $100 million. And they, they are closed on Friday night and Saturday to observe the traditional Jewish Sabbath. And more annoyingly, and I've heard actually Zach talk about this, you can't even place an order on their website on Friday night, Saturday. They believe in it that strongly. And most experts in business would say this is pretty foolish, but evidently it seems to be working okay for them. Also, you see, or, or there's, there's stories that the ancient Jews wouldn't fight offensively on the Sabbath. They were allowed to defend themselves, but they would not go on the offense, even in the midst of battle. They were actually really careful to order the times that they went to battle in order so that they would hope that the, sab- that the, the battle would be done before the Sabbath came. I think that's pretty powerful. I mean, that's trust. I don't know about you, but I have not had to go to battle with a sword and a spear in a long time. So when we accurately understand and believe God and his promises, we're given opportunities to experience the trust that comes from him being faithful. And that leads to rest. I think that's why David in Psalm 23 can say that the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. And even when I go through the darkest valleys, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's not because he hasn't had adversity, but it's, it's because he's trusted God in adversity and seen him come through. So finally, let's look at renewal, refilling. This is a a necessary mode of healing as we see the Sabbath, or we see it in the Sabbath. Because like I said earlier, we're called to do good work. But if we're constantly going into good work half-filled, it doesn't work out very well. So in this, we get to be restored for service in the kingdom, for the good works that he's prepared ahead of time for us to do. That's as long as we have our identity in alignment. This looks like just loving on your family right. 
being an employee or a coworker that reflects Jesus or loving and working for the good and the healing of our communities. William Wilberforce, who led the move to abolish slavery in England, was also described as being very ambitious. In fact, it was actually said about him that ambition would have killed him if it weren't for his observance of the Sabbath. Wilberforce wrote, Blessed be to God for the day of rest and religious occupation wherein earthly things assume their true size and ambition is sunted. I think that's so profound. The things assume their true size. We're not making mountains out of molehills. Ambition is stunted. We're not being ambitious for ourselves, but we're working for the kingdom. I think most of us in here, at least at one time or another, I know myself included, we've had uh, fitness goals. Like you hear people that say, I want to run longer or faster. I want to be better at basketball. I want to be stronger. Some version of that. We all know that it takes hard work, but what we don't often realize is that it takes good rest. If all you do is get under heavy weight every day and you just crush yourselves, you won't recover. You don't get stronger during the work. You get weaker. You don't run. You don't get endurance. You don't get um, extra wind while you're running. You get tired. But in the rest, after hard work, that's where you restore. Any of us who have not heeded that advice have probably been uh, experienced chronic, chronic injury patterns like tendonitis or bursitis, even stress fractures. Um, this is all brought on by doing good work, but just too much of it and out of rhythm. Again, it's hard work and good rest. This is a gift. It's almost like God knew what we needed to thrive. All right, so yeah, in the interest of time, let's move on to Sabbath as a practice. Let's, let's talk about how it might look to use the gift. All the disciplines are super important. Last week, Zach had a quote that memorizing scripture may be the most important. And honestly, I would tend to agree with that. Even though Sabbath is close to my heart, hiding God's word in my heart is necessary. But I also see the need for space in our busy lives. Recently, as we've been going through this and we've been talking about it in our community groups, the most common reason I hear for people not doing the disciplines is not because they don't agree with them. It's not because they don't like them. It's because they forgot because they were too busy. So Sabbath is a way of clearing space. I look at it like clearing a garden. You go out and find this patch of ground. It's got good sun. You can reach it with the sprinklers. What do you do? You, you clear it out. You remove all the weeds and you get all the dirt clods and the rocks and everything out of there. You cultivate the soil and you make space. Sabbath is making space in time. Intimacy with God cannot be rushed. So when we talk about specificity, I, honestly, the Bible comes up a little short on this. There's not a lot of specificity on the Sabbath, especially, ironically, if you hold it in contrast to the building of the tabernacle. I mean, you get five whole chapters in Exodus, everything from the type of wood to use for the poles and the measurements of the altar and the type of cloth to use and the way that God wants everything woven together. You get all this detail. But when it comes to Sabbath, we get some verses. And those verses say rest and don't work. Yeah, there's a couple of things that are outliers that that we can talk about if you want to talk more about it. But by and large, the overarching 
command is to rest and not work. Well, we might not get it specifically, but I do think we get some hints here back in our text in Matthew 12, or Matthew 12, starting in verse one. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on Sabbath. His disciples were very hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, see, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. He said to them, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or those with him to eat, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath day, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? So I tell you something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Or famously and kind of parallel uh, quoted in Mark chapter 2, 27. Then he told them the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. The point is, the Sabbath is a command, but it was first a gift. Before the fall, it was a gift. It's a relational opportunity. And I think the ambiguity here is on purpose because relational things are exhausting to try and delineate out every little thing. Relation needs to happen. It needs to cultivate. It needs to be grown. So we're free to celebrate it. Within the guideline, I I think that We're free to celebrate it. And there's some guidelines that I'll talk about in a minute, but those are guidelines. They're not rules. They're not things to check off. It was made for us. Just remember, if that's all you remember today, remember that it was made for us. Okay, so the guidelines. So the word Sabbath in Hebrew has kind of like four like pretty good translations to English. I think the picture of it is like four facets of a diamond. Like they all come together to show a side. So those four translations are cease, rest, delight, and worship. There is no order to them. There's no importance. There's no any of that. But I kind of think of them in a, like a logical like order. That's just kind of how my brain works. So we'll start off with cease first. The first movement of the Sabbath is to stop. Just stop. Cease. Stop working, stop consuming, stop busyness, just stop. God stopped. I'm not going to lie. This is often the hardest part. This is uncomfortable. Sometimes when we do this, it feels like we're just slamming on the brakes of a car without wearing our seatbelt. We abruptly stop our bodies and our mind keeps going. Slams right into the front. In fact, in medicine, we call that a concussion. It's really disorienting. Remember like I was talking about coronavirus earlier? Well, we found out what it was like when somebody else slams on the brakes for us. We're immediately removed from our busyness and our distraction, and it's super disorienting, and it's super uncomfortable. But after a while, good things start to happen. Talking about that slowdown, and, you know, I was complaining about having to go to work. The cool thing was is that as I was talking to people, I started to hear story after story about um, just the good things, the profound things that happened. And some of the best ones were families reconnecting. With nothing to get in the way, they re-experienced these people that they had just been running the rat race next to for years. They had time for unhurried conversation. They were forced with being able to get to know each other again. And they found out that there's a lot of people in their lives they really loved. So it it was a good thing. It's hard, but it's a good thing. The next step is rest. And see, like, that's why I put cease first. It's kind of hard to, to rest if you're not ceasing. So, um, <clears throat> so 
rest is, rest is something we talk about, but I think it's something we understand very little. It can look like some really simple, really good things. Here's a few. Sleeping in on the Sabbath, taking a nap, going for a relaxing walk, reading a book, or just sitting outside. Now, this isn't the way you want to order the whole of your week, but on one day, it's really beautiful and really good to do. The biggest mistake we can make, or one of the biggest mistakes we can make with rest, is that we confuse it with sloth, with just being lazy, with distraction, like we talked about earlier, or with entertainment, especially technology-based entertainment. I don't have anything against technology, but technology is not restful. How many of us know that? Technology is tiring. It makes us tired, but it is not restful. It's not refilling. Uh, In 2017, uh, the Netflix CEO was asked about uh, all the new streaming services that were popping up, and he was asked if he was worried about business. And he laughed it off, and he said, you know, you get a show or a movie you really are dying to watch, and you end up staying really late to watch it. So we actually compete with sleep. He's not worried about business because business is good. He knows that we'll give up sleep for this. So in the pursuit of the true experience of Sabbath, if you take up this, this challenge, I would, be, I would encourage you to be aware of counterfeit rest, to lean into the good things. The other big mistake, and this is the one I'm usually the most guilty of, is uh, resting inadequately. Uh, you have so much to do, you're tired, you're busy, you've just got a lot on your plate, so what do you do? You stay up late to get it done or you get up really early to get it done? But either way, you're shorting your rest. I, so I have an iPhone 7. It's like antique iPhone 7. The battery's getting pretty old. Every once in a while, I actually have to use it for like an extra task, like at work or if we're on a trip and I need to use Google Maps for an extended period of time. And what happens is the battery starts draining faster than normal and you know, you like at 20%, you start to get that, that really annoying message that pops up. Oh, you got 20%. You're like, yes, I know. I'm trying to do a thing. And then it keeps going. And like, I'm fully convinced that this message is actually what's draining my battery so fast. I just wish it would stop. So what do I do? I do what every responsible adult would do. And I charge it to 30%, so it'll shut up. I don't take the time to charge it to 100. Ain't nobody got time for that. So I just charge it and I move on. And we do the same thing. We get just enough sleep to exist, to function, to show up to work. But are we bringing in a fully filled us for the work God has to do with us, do for us, do through us? We go around constantly feeling like we need a full charge. We need to learn to lean into our actual needs, our deeper needs, and take the time to completely recharge. And besides the truth of it is, we actually get more done if we fully recharge. And there's a whole lot less to apologize for later. All right, so the next movement is delight. This is one of my favorites. After you've ceased and you've rested, you have space to delight in God and in the things that he has for you. Like I said earlier, our desires are insatiable and endless. So what's the end goal if we're not supposed to fill it with what the world has? Well, the end goal is God. In this beautiful turn of events, he has given us an endless, insatiable desire because he is an endless God and only he can fill that. The only thing that can adequately fit in that space and leave us satisfied is infinite abiding with an infinite God. Augustine in his book, Confessions, 
says, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in thee. Not in doing, but in rest in thee. So what does delight look like? I know it's not a word that we commonly use. Um, we know the, the, the distraction, the entertainment stuff. We're trying to stay away from that. But like, what does it look like? Well, you can delight in God by many things. You can enjoy the good food, the good family, the nature, the music, a good book, good conversation, all of these things that God has given us to enjoy. You can enjoy them. You're supposed to enjoy them. That's why he gave them to us. We're not supposed to put them up here, but we're supposed to enjoy them here and him through them. And this was like kind of ambiguous for me at first. And uh, I ran across a really just simple prayer that I'll often pray when I feel like things are getting out of whack. And it goes like this. Align my heart with yours in order to truly enjoy you and the things you have for me. Not serving good things, but delighting in you through them. And he's always been gracious in that, in that sense. He reorders things and I get to delight in them truly and deeply. It's an active participation. It's not passive. So when I talked about entertainment earlier, that's entertainment. You're just sitting back and you're consuming, you're consuming, you're consuming. Delighting, it's engaging in. It's good conversation. You're talking, you're listening, you're being with people. There's something beautiful about that. We serve a God of unity. He created us for unity. Entertainment leaves us feeling more and leaves us feeling like we need more and more and more to be satisfied. Delight, when it's over, when it's done with, you feel like that was a good meal. Leonard Ravenhill says, the devil's substitute for joy is entertainment. So again, we look at these, we look at these things that have kind of been skewed. I think David really, really beautifully captures it in Psalm 27, four, when he says, I have asked one thing of the Lord is what I desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. Just being with God and looking at him. Sabbath has a space for that. And lastly, we've ceased, we've rested, we've been able to delight. The natural overflow of that, when all the, the facets come together, the natural overflow is worship. When you've been filled and you see his goodness and you recognize him face to face, how can you not worship? I think worship takes a lot of different forms in Sabbath. We, we definitely experience it in different ways, depending on whatever day you want to choose. I think Sunday morning corporate worship is wonderful. I mean, there's you guys sing beautiful. I, I loved it this morning, hearing all these voices worshiping, hearing God's words sung over me and my family. It was I also worship by myself. I sing. Actually, that's probably a good thing to hear me sing by myself. <laughs> but we know this. We know that song can tune our heart. So why not fill it with things that worship him? things that bring us closer to him. I've never finished a good worship song and been like, man, I'm still pissed off. And lastly, we see in Jesus' example, it's loving God, it's loving people. And sometimes that actually means doing something in service for others. Let's pick Matthew back up here. Uh, we're gonna go back a little bit. Verse seven. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, 
you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Moving on from here, he entered the synagogue. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand, and in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he replied to them, who among you, if he had a sheep that had fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and was restored as good as the other. Again, we see this paralleled in Mark. This is, this is not a coincidence. In fact, ironically, not ironically, I think it's very purposed. Jesus heals seven times on the Sabbath. You can find it in the Gospels. And obviously, Jesus, or God rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath and completion and fulfillment definitely have an inextricable tie together. So like Jesus says in Matthew, that he came to fulfill the law, to complete it, but not to negate it. He's fulfilling it. And I think that that's the call for us to do as well. Okay, so what does this look like? Let's talk about the practice for the week. <clears throat> the challenge is, is just to, to do it, to give it a shot. I know 24 hours can be really daunting. So if you don't feel like you can do 24 hours, don't. We started off with 12. We had the, the opportunity to do, to do that. But I know that people that'll do a four-hour Sabbath and still find it really filling. The idea is to set apart a holy space for God. You don't say, oh, I'll do it when I'm done with this project. You set a time and you honor that time as holy. When the time comes, whether things are done or not, you enter that space. And I think that what you'll find, if you do engage in this, I think what you'll find is that you want to do it more and more and more. Now, like I said, we started with 12, we're doing 24, and it's beautiful. I was talking with a friend the other day, and I was talking about what Sabbath looks like for us, and they said, oh, that sounds like Christmas morning. And I said, yes, yes, it does. It feels like Christmas morning every week. And I don't know about you, like I said earlier, I'm worn out at the end of the week. I look forward to the Sabbath time. It's filling, it's refreshing, it's restorative. So that's it, do Sabbath. Just stop. And if you're really wanting to like next level it, if you're already doing Sabbath, then do some of the cool Old, old Testament or the, the traditional practices that the Jews used to uh, ring in the Sabbath. Lighting candles, singing a song, making it fancy, having a treat. That's delighting. That's a good thing. Um, but enjoy it. I haven't talked a lot about the theology of this because today that's not the point. The point is it's a gift that we need to partake in. So there's a lot of nuance here. Like I said, this is an intro thing. In fact, you know, it, trying to keep it short, but this is an intro thing. Please engage with us, talk to us. If you have questions, there's nuance here. We celebrate Sabbath on Friday night and Saturday morning. But for a lot of people, Sunday makes more sense. If you're in ministry, Sunday is a full-on work day. So maybe Monday makes a lot of sense. It doesn't really matter Jesus fulfilled it. The point is, is to be with him. All right, let's do some Q&A. Oh, you reset on me. Let's see if I can do this. Huh? 
I was going to do Q&A first. Is that cool? Sweet. Okay. So what does Sabbath look like with a constantly changing and rotating work schedule? Awesome question. Um, the 6 and 7 1 rhythm is the original rhythm. It doesn't mean that it's what you have to do. It doesn't mean that you're going to get stoned like the Old Testament would tell you. Again, the idea is the attitude. So if you have a constantly changing schedule, I think it's healthy to try and like maybe shoot for that 6 and 1, that 7th day. But, you know, I have friends that work a 5 on, 5 off. So pick it every 6 or pick it as you can. The idea is pick it intentionally ahead of time and set that space apart. Um, and it's going to look different for everybody. Sometimes the schedule is just wonky and crazy. But we all, at least in these days, we all get our schedules ahead of time. So I would encourage you when you get it, look at it and plan it out like a vacation, like a, like a happy day. <clears throat> um, what about the thought that we are not under the covenant anymore? We don't sacrifice any lambs lambs any longer, and why practice Sabbath? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, in short, I practice Sabbath because it is the rhythm of creation, and it's a good gift. Um, just because we don't have to? Yeah, you're right. We don't have to. Um, I, I heard a pastor one time talking about this said, like, I don't have to tell you not to eat rocks, right? Like, you know that's a good idea, so we're free to eat rocks if we want to, but there are consequences. And I think we're living in the state of those consequences. But there is absolutely no condemnation from, from myself, from God, from anybody here. It's a freedom of practice thing. But then also, like I also kind of add in the, like it's in the 10 commandments. So even though it's not under the covenant, like we're also not murdering and stealing and lying and like thinking that's a cool, okay thing because Jesus filled it. So Again, I caution you that if that's the only argument you use, you might want to lean into it. That was definitely my first argument. And uh, yeah, so lean into it. Definitely come out and talk to me, whoever this is. Come and talk to me afterwards. We can talk a little bit more about it. I got to nerd out a little bit throughout this sermon. Uh, okay, so can you give insight into not honoring Sabbath on the day it was appointed in Scripture, Saturday? Are we compromising by Sunday of the Sabbath? I don't really think so. Um, you know, in the New Testament, they call Sunday the Lord's Day. And that is, that is uh, New Testament churches traditionally agreed that they will gather and worship Jesus on that day. And so, again, we see in the fulfillment of the law that there's kind of this, this entry of grace, that it's, that it's this heart thing. You know, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the command to not commit adultery, to not murder, to not do these things, and he like totally, totally moves the goalposts. It's not just a not action thing, it's a heart condition. And I think with Sabbath, it almost looks a little inverse, that it's not just the action, but it's a heart condition. And actually, it takes some legalism off of it. It gives you some freedom into it. So yeah, these are great questions, guys. Um, <clears throat> Could you count Sunday as a Sabbath and do fun things on it? Or as or supposed to be a pure, just Bible? Could you hang? Oh, absolutely not. You totally count Sunday as a Sabbath. Like I said, I love the corporate worship. In fact, we used to do Sunday as a Sabbath, 
But even though, I, even though I'm not like paid like to be on staff here, it's a work day for me. And we felt like it was just really busy. But I really think that Sabbath lends itself, or sorry, Sunday lends itself to a Sabbath rhythm. You get to be with your friends and family here at church. You get to worship Jesus. You get Bible teaching. Like it's already started off in a natural rhythm. And as far as like the hanging out with friends, doing all that stuff, absolutely. This is the delighting thing that we've talked about. This is enjoying God through the gifts he's given you. I would caution you, there are some, you know, there are some sideboards there of like what you're doing when you're hanging out with friends and probably wouldn't go out and party or do anything like that. But like just having a good Sabbath lunch or a good Sunday lunch, that's Sabbath in my book. And again, it's not my, it's not up to me, but uh, yeah, resources on the Sabbath. Um, there's a bunch. Um, there's actually some, believe it or not, I like some of the, like the, the newer rabbinic scholars, they talk about it. And, you know, you kind of got to like chew the meat and spit out the bones a little bit and try to understand where we land as a, as a Protestant church. But there's some really good resources. Um, I've rarely seen it that we land on the legalistic side in our society. So I think it's kind of cool to like see what it would look like in a traditional Jewish context and then bring that forward into just the grace we experience under Jesus. So yeah, um, there's a lot. In fact, I would just say, maybe you could just come see me afterwards um, that there's different pastors. There's actually some really good YouTube sermons that go even more in depth on this uh, from, from trusted pastors. Um, I think that's it. Yeah. All right, <clears throat> so in a moment, we're gonna re- recite the Nicene Creed and we're gonna come in, um, enjoy the communion meal. Uh, I'm gonna <clears throat> invite the band to come up now and, and I'm just gonna kind of leave us with this last thought before we recite the creed. In Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve. Before they can do anything, he invites them to enjoy Sabbath with him. So on the Sabbath, we don't accomplish anything. Instead, we make space to experience the God who loves us, and we accept the invitation to experience him, even though we haven't earned it. And just like that, Jesus bore our sins and died and rose again to extend the invitation of salvation and the gift of true life. He did this for us while we were still his enemies. We couldn't have earned it. So I encourage you as you come up and you take the bread and the cup to remember that just like we see in creation and Sabbath with salvation in Jesus, there's nothing to earn. It's already been bought and paid for. He's giving it to us. We just need to accept it. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.